0: ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industry building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Hi, I'm Leonard Duncan, your host of ATV Talk. Episode five, it's going to be a roundtable. Instead of our normal format where we have a single interview, we're going to talk to many different levels and different people in the industry. We hope you enjoy. Uh, I'd just like to welcome everybody to ATV Talk. We're going to have a roundtable today. We have Danny Duncan, uh, a founder of the ATV industry. We have Lauren Duncan, the owner of Duncan Racing. We have Josh Rowe, the hired throttle for any desert team that wants to win. (laughs) And retired ATC, ATV racer, Brian Fuller. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming to ATV Talk today. Absolutely. Good uh, my pleasure to have you guys. I really appreciate you coming and talking to us. Um, we're going to talk some ATVs. Um, a little bit about how you got started, where you started riding, uh, how you really got into ATVs. Brian, uh, you're the retired uh, ace here, and uh, you got to race two-wheelers, three-wheelers, and four-wheelers.
1: Um, how'd sure you get did. started?
0: Uh Riding 90s back in the old uh, late 70s. Let's uh, be a little more specific. Uh, rigid ATC, ATCs. ATC 90s. You know, and anybody doesn't know what an ATC is, it's, it's a three wheeler with no suspension and a 90cc motor. Then we went to 185s, and we went to 250rs, and here we are. Three wheelers, quads. Uh, you guys lived in those <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a little before your time, huh? You didn't do any of the 3 wheeler stuff, did you, yeah. Josh? Yeah, yeah a little, little different. It was it was a lot of fun. The 250Rs were good. The quads were good. It uh, started all the way from the early 70s all the way up to 1989. And you, you went to school with Lauren. Yes, so, and you. Well, yeah, I was a couple years behind you guys. Yeah. 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 First racing team I ever rode with was Danny's Machine Works. Then on a three wheeler, On a three wheeler, yeah. But you raced two wheelers prior to that. Two you wheelers were a lot younger than that. That was uh, 75, 76 at Verona. And then uh, basically finished that out when uh, Bobby Sullivan had his accident and got paralyzed. That right into the motorcycle career with my brother and I. And how old were you when that happened? That was, uh, I was in 10th grade, so whatever that is. He he, (laughs) he got his accident the day after Christmas in 1979. So that uh, stopped the two-wheelers thing, and then I got into the three-wheelers, raced those for about three or four years, and then the quads took over and raced those motocross-wise for a couple years, and then went to the District 38 Desert, or year and a half, two years, and then uh, pretty much stopped consistently racing. And then uh, Lauren took me over to Holland to the Veronica Beach race a couple of times. And had some fun there on some quads and and then uh, just did it for fun at the dunes. And that's pretty much it. So, Josh, just so that you're understanding this, ATVs were invented long before you were born. Oh, correct. correct. Yes. I got that. I, got yeah, that. I just yeah. wanted to make sure that you knew that. Um, Lauren, uh, you probably have the most experience next to dead here uh, of anybody in the ATV industry. Um, some, some definite changes from the three-wheeler era to the four-wheeler era, um, m- massive, drastic changes in, in your world there. Oh, it's just, my world really hasn't changed a whole much. Like you still gotta, you still gotta get the work done. As society has grown and altered and changed and evolved, so has the automotive and the motorcycle and the ATV industry. You know, I remember 1969, my dad brought home the first ATC 90 from uh, Valley Motorcycle Sales. Had a balloon front tire with no rim, and uh, you couldn't ride the thing every time you tried to turn you wanted to put your foot down and it was the tires had no rims they were just balloon balls probably what about 20 inches in diameter and then you try to go over something and it bounced. and had an old uh honda used that rocker arm design 90 motor for everything and uh it was about as nuclear as you could get um I don't think they were out a year, and my dad was already putting big more kits in them and, and porting them and putting headers on them. And it wasn't long after that, a couple of years later, he uh, the ATC 70 came out, and uh, being the intelligent guy my father was, he found that that was the best babysitter he ever had. And he got a few of those, and we just rode them to death for hours and hours and hours. I mean, I can't imagine turning my kids loose now with (laughs) no supervision, but. Well, we were supervised. He just was up in the shop working. And and when we ran out of of gas, he would see that we got some gas and kept going. But it's uh, like everything, you look back and you go, boy, if I knew then what I know now, you know, just uh, there was no such thing as a CNC machine. You had to build everything by hand just how cumbersome it was to do general machine work, you know, just the evolution of technology has just made ATVs evolve tremendously. Like everything else. Yeah. It's uh and you either evolve with it or you're not doing it anymore. Right. Dad, do you uh you kind of uh have seen massive changes from the the oil dripping European bikes that you worked on to the Japanese machines that, that we ride today yeah the quality of the bikes that I started on were uh, was not too great and uh, the Japanese stuff uh, had electric starters didn't link oil not going some like like Uh, Some of the other stuff did, but uh, working on them still took the same amount of uh, time to to do a board job or a board job or depending on, you know, what, whether you're working on a twin or a little single or one big difference back in the 60s and 70s is people were not so caught up in the price. And what I mean by that now you see tremendous amount of products made worldwide. And every single thing you can think of, like construction, automotive, the ATVs, that price dictates the quality of the product. I mean, I've got some machines that we use still that were built to take apart and fix. And when they manufactured them and they built them in the 50s and the 60s, that's how they thought about that. Well, when Honda built all these little machines, these ATC 90s and 110s and 185s. They weren't thinking to make the cheapest thing in the world. They weren't thinking to throw it away and get another one. They were building quality product. I mean, if you have a six millimeter bolt off of an ATC 90, it's probably still good today. You know, just the quality of the bolt, just everything about it, just about, it. Well, except you, for the perishable items, you still see. That a t c in some form running around in people's backyards or in the the, the desert or, or or all over the place because the quality was so great, yeah, but if you look remember the little mini books, little taco mini bikes, just pieces of the trash, you know they just wouldn't stay running for one day, let alone <clears throat> hold up for decades, and uh you know Honda's still hands down the quality leader in our industry. I mean, I know technology in the two-wheeler industry, the Europeans have really made tremendous strides, but at the end of the day, a Honda is just the benchmark of quality. But you see a lot of other manufacturers of motorcycles, ATVs and UTVs that can't even
1: they can't compare. They
0: haven't, yeah, they haven't figured it out. It, it's so price point for how they do it. And uh, it's it's just it's a throwaway. You run it for a season, and you got to get rid of it. Honda's just a tough machine, and Yamaha's a solid second quality-wise. You know, they make a good product. and They think their stuff through, and that's probably the most depressing thing. is you see, everything now is just driven by price. Everywhere you go, it's price. How do you do business? It's how you buy so many things in this world. Is not quality, not customer service. Not can I fix it? Not how long is it going to last? Not how is it going to work? It's price and it's, it, it's, it's kind of depressing to a point. yeah you can you can't dwell on it because it will take you down. you know, and most people don't even think about it. but when you're in that world and you're working on those parts or you're making those parts and can't tell you how many parts I wanted to make, but I couldn't sell them at a price point that uh, would make it profitable. I could always find somebody out there that wants it, but not enough to sell enough to do it. Right, right, Josh, listening to uh the the evolution of the men that are sitting around you that have that have kind of paved the way for a portion of your career, um, what do you think about some of the things that they got to ride back in the day because you you've seen some of those machines, you've even got to experience them in a small form, uh maybe when you were a younger kid because you're thirty now, so you, so you were around a little bit yeah no i mean uh yeah I and mean, i'm surrounded by greats of the atv industry right now um but no yeah to i mean my dad seeing the the, the quads my dad rode back in the day and and even now getting to do the 250r and banshee photo shoots as you guys getting to ride those i mean to be honest i've ridden three four two strokes in my life so um but yeah, I mean the the technology and as far as everything's come over the years is it's amazing to see that they were able to. I mean, like I was talking to Lauren about like I still can't get over that a banshee can do Ponderville on my motor. He's like, I I just don't like getting a four stroke to last that long is beyond me, and then to do have a two stroke running like that is it's crazy. And but yeah, it's uh it's impressive that the the reliability they got out of those machines. Well, the handling characteristics on some of them were were pretty bad, and and the evolution of the sport with guys like Doug Roll and mm-hmm. and Elka, and there's other guys out there that do that do suspension work and, and make a arms and, and different shock companies uh, to get these machines to handle the way they do. It's all a developmental process because as Brian was telling us earlier, he started riding a rigid, okay, and most people don't even understand what that is. That's no suspension. It's just air in the tires giving you. Yeah, your, but you weren't driving that rigid at Carlsbad grand prix course you know you're riding it out of the dunes you were riding it out of his dad's property you know you went where you could still ride with it well to hitting a three inch bump on a rigid is still hard well, <laughs> I, I mean I, I will i will say the, the the one thing that that i never even raced without one time in my life was a steering stabilizer and i couldn't imagine i mean i can't ride a quad without a steering stabilizer that's how big and sissy i am so all these guys that used to race, you know, all these long distance races or short course races or anything without a stabilizer is, I mean, I, it's, yeah, it's beyond me. Well, they used to think that if you put a steering dampener on there, you were a sissy. Well, and I, they wouldn't do it. I mean, they just wouldn't do it. You know, I mean. Like some people like, wear well, gloves on. A lot of gloves are for girls. <laughs> but that's the <that's> neither <laughs> I'm not going to hold it against any of them. Guys. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, you, you, you talk to guys like Marty Hart. You know, he didn't have steering dampener. And, and he didn't want one. He yeah, but you Look training. at the steering dampener technology. Oh, it's came They didn't build an applicable dampener that really kicked butt on a ATV, probably until the last 10, 15 years. Right. You know, they were taking street dampers and or assist arms off of Volkswagens and put them on there, and that's what they were using. There were no valving. You know, they just changed the location in relation to the center line of the steering stem to change their, their leverage ratio. So it was so primitive. So you can't really cap on this on the damper when there wasn't nothing out there to use. You know, same with same with AR. You know, a lot of times we raised with stock ARs because there were some welders out there that could just move the wheel out. But until guys like Doug Rowe got involved and changed the motion ratios and really affected the steering and made a front end that worked efficiently better, that was re-engineered, not just wider, that's when suspension really stepped to the next level. And there's people today, probably the vast majority of your audience, that don't have any clue what that means. You know, you've got to have guys like and stuff that know how to make a part like that so it works better. Well, That's why we call it desired level of performance when you're A-arm shopping or shock shopping. If you want it to, to handle great and you want it to work great, you have to buy the higher-end product because the only, those are the guys that did the development and to make them work for theory I think not always the high, not not always the more money product is better. Well, it, 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 uh, for for the people that we deal with, I think that, that that's the vast majority of it. But there are some guys out there that charge a lot of money for things that don't work. But that's with anything. That's with any industry. Yeah, you, get, you got three: yeah, Lager Will, and Walsh. Are pretty much did the vast majority of performance suspension available. I would say Roll was the leader with Lager, Mark Lager, the close second, and then Walsh kind of came in later and did it. You know, but yeah, that that, that I And mean, yeah. you look at that that's really a small little pot of people. Exactly. I mean, our industry is as big as it is is, is really really tiny, and everybody knows everybody, and everybody you, you know choose the same dirt and and goes to the same events and 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 does a lot of the same things, and you get to know these people and and. and deal with them at a specific level each and every one of them so dad what uh what do you specifically look at today and think wow i mean you you've seen a lot of the evolution you've seen the travel that we've got to go do you've seen the machines that we work on you've had hands-on from the 90s cc machine to the 450s that we run today and the two-strokes well for the last few years i would say when you start to try to improve the engines on the stuff that comes out you've got to be careful because they're so damn good to start with you can detune them uh, by just making the wrong choice of of what you do to it the uh, years ago, when uh, the two strokes kind of ruled, uh, this is like Lauren was saying, the suspension wasn't good. As the suspension improved, the engines were already so damn fast that um, you couldn't ride them hard because you didn't have any suspension on you. As the suspension got better, um, then you start to need more power. But uh, uh, I don't know, you know, different. No, what I think he's trying to say is, that it's just not a given that you can take a motor and make it faster. Right, right. You know, and, and we, we probably get one every week that's worked, worked on by somebody that it's almost criminal what they do because they just have no clue and it slows it down. Right. And you know, it just uh, because it started. To they, they they think they fixed it. It's hard to really make things better. We did that with pipe testing sometimes. Some pipes made the bike go faster, and sometimes the pipe made the bike go slower. You don't learn it until you do it. Right. Yeah. yeah. That, that's everything. Brian, you um you transitioned from a three-wheeler, a 250R, where you raced the Nationals, uh, to a four-wheeler, you know, quad. Um how big was the transition for you back then? A three-wheeler was definitely harder to ride, you know. Um rode a three-wheeler for years, so it kind of was natural for me once I grew into it. And then once we started racing, you know, got into the, uh, I actually had a Tri-Z for 250 Tri-Z for a while, and then the switched to Hondas. I think the Hondas were more adjustable and tunable. But I, th- I think the the quad was a lot. We called it a couch, so it was a lot easier to ride. But anything at speed, you know, is trying to be competitive, the hard part. Our three wheelers were very competitive for a long time. When we when Lauren and I did the nationals, and uh, had some pretty good success with that the 250R. But I think the 250R quad just took it to a, a different level of uh, comfort. You could actually. Do more things to it, you know. I wasn't a big fan of the steering stabilizer on motocross, but for desert, I think you kind of need it. Yeah. So there was a lot of different things that came around during that time. But I think we had really good success on the three wheeler for a long time, and then once uh, my career started winding down on the quad side, we just were doing desert stuff and District Thirty Eight. When you won the championship down in District Thirty Eight, you were on a eighty eight two fifty r with stock suspension for 87, 87, yeah. eighty seven yeah well 87. yeah we'll just have the different swing arm in the rear but yeah it was stock uh Lauren eventually put a, a motor behind it which made it a lot better but yeah we won a lot of well, a lot of desert races on that thing but
1: we had a lot of uh
0: broken frames broken swing arms and you know only went through two sets of tires for the whole season, which is very rare. of oh. Nowadays, you use a new set of tires for every race. But yeah, I had a practice set of tires and a race set of tires. and Pre-run on one and change them. Come back the next day and race on another set. and did that for a whole season. So, yeah, I think the, the quad definitely uh, changed the whole ATV industry. The three-wheelers kind of totally went to the wayside. I think they're coming back now a little bit. Some people are doing them on some different races. I've seen that. Uh, you, you see them come out at come out at works as a as a, a, a class for three wheelers. Yeah, um, I don't know how many guys show up, but they, they've had them. So, I, I still got mine. Uh, Lauren redid it. I to, both of you guys redid it about 15 years ago. Probably got three hours on it, sitting, sitting in the sit, garage. Sitting in the garage with a sheet on it. I tried to ride it at the desert. Well, I took it out there once for one of my friends to ride and thought I was gonna die. <laughs> definitely uh definitely don't know how we did what we did on wheelers. when you actually get adapted onto a quad and and then try to go back. Yeah, see so when you ride a three wheeler you have to pick your own lines. Freewheeler needs its own mind, its own style of riding. And it takes a special rider to ride it. Where riding a four wheeler is almost like taking your brain out, putting it in the helmet bag and getting big
1: and a lot of the
0: lines on a four wheeler are very Thanks. similar to what you would take on a two wheeler. Yeah, and it's just a way that... it saved the industry so between the consumer products agency commission clamping down on Honda and just stifling the growth of new three wheelers. We had to have four wheelers, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. With it. The industry would have went away. So it just opened it up for put my mom on one because you're just not going to tip over when she stops. You know, she's not going to put her foot down like that. like Just easier to ride. You know, it's just the evolution, it's kind of similar to jet skis from stand ups to sit down. Way harder to do a stand up; takes a lot more skill. More sportier, but <clears> the vast <throat> majority of jet ski riders aren't comfortable riding a stand up. They need a sit down boat. Look at what it did to the industry. Yeah, you. I mean, I can't, the, the I can't ride stand ups in my life. The thing that's mind up. Online. The thing that's mind boggling is like the like short course races. I can see because they can kind of just burn in their own lines and they can they can make them work. But yeah, out in the desert and like when they race them down in Baja and stuff to be able to sit in a two track and have, you have on a normal motorcycle, you take the center line or you pick a side, you've got to have one tire in the middle and you got both on each side. So you literally got the whole trail covered. You have no way to dodge rocks, dodge anything that's coming at you. I mean, it's just crazy to, I mean, I don't even know how you would go about even navigating the trail on something like that. I mean, let alone riding in dust or even having, I mean, Any, there, there was a thousand. Big trucks down there that just ruined the track. either. it was a different world then, you know. So it was hard, like no doubt. Right, right. But it wasn't quite like they had to put put up with today. You totally. had the UTVs ruining the track. You yeah. didn't have all the, the the big trucks ruining the track. I mean, they were out there, but it wasn't the same. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. Were also, you're also talking about a time when not as many races had been ran, so some of the trails weren't as worn in, the ruts weren't as bad. So I mean, mm-hmm. like like Lauren said, it was still bad. It wasn't populated as much. You can move the tracks, you know? right? You're still going back to the time when you're still riding a 252 stroke with limited fuel on these bikes, with limited resources for communication, with limited. Resources. It's like, it's nuts just thinking I about it. I bet like, you if you looked at the times of the average time of some of those team auto you'd be shocked at how fast I I could imagine. I My dad has told me stories of going over the summit of pre-running on his 250R with a saddlebag of gas and. Yeah. I'll see you on the other side. Like I, to this day, I'm like, if I don't have a sat phone, if i don't have <laughs> a spot tracker, like, yeah, I'll see you guys never like, oh wow. Technology, you know, I Yeah. Mean, I, I think that the, the fear factor for the older guys, you know, you just didn't think about those things because this is, this is all we have. This is what we got. Yeah. We didn't have a cell phone to to call our buddy and have him come pick us up. To, you know, hit B or, yeah. you know, the alternate spot we just have to go down there and, and figure it out. They were just getting seatbelts in cars around that time. <laughs> they hadn't had a shoulder cut yet. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just the times. Right. Just, uh, yeah. I think the three-wheeler had its time. I mean, it took over the dunes from the, from the old Baja bugs and stuff that were running down there with the Glamis and stuff. Then the three-wheelers kind of took the dunes over. I think the, the berm tracks and the, the three-wheelers then, and then the 250Rs came out and then the, Berm tracks got bigger and longer, and a lot of people learned how to ride that way. I think riding the wide open desert on a three wheeler, which I never did, would be uh, a little exciting. You would have been successful because you, yeah. right you were successful. When you picked a line and you were slow racing. Yeah, so. I, th- I thought motocross on a three wheeler was was good because you know you usually using the, the terrain to, to help you turn, and you're using like a berm track in a sense. Where once you get out there in the open terrain, you know, the whole different world. You're on your own. But we were also fortunate to have a motocross track almost in our backyard up up there at Barona Barona Speedway up there. And the yeah. three wheeler shined on a natural terrain motocross track, not these man made with doubles and triples. And, I mean, there's a few people that do it, but the vast majority, the three wheeler was much happier. You're going to race motocross on a natural terrain. That's what Barona was, it's kind of built into the natural terrain and the best. We Regular races that were had were generally on natural terrain. But where they really shine is on flat tracks, TTs. You know, they'd be fantastic. Maybe even better than four wheels. Yeah, Verona had both. We used to do that every weekend. You'd go up there and do two motos of motocross, and then they'd grade some stuff out and turn it into a TT track, and then you'd do two motos of TT, and then you'd go home. And those, those are the days when there was, you know, Quite a few t- people turning out for those, you know, a couple couple hundred entries. It's actually better to watch a three national on a flat track than it is a formula because a formula one you just get you know the eighth place guy bang into the pile. Everybody got brave and just smashed into people. You didn't do that on three because you'd just be in the hospital. Yeah, I mean, you, you had to drive mess. the thing. It, it, it's kind of difference between NASCAR and IndyCar. You don't see the IndyCar guy just running into the first turn. But you see some NASCAR guys. Well, you know, I'm gonna come through this more likely. Four wheelers like in a NASCAR and three wheelers kinda of like being an Indy car, open wheeler. You know, it just it just took a different skill set and you just added that's a little more finesse. Uh, you guys built uh, I'm talking to, to Danny and Lauren, uh, they built an IRS uh two fifty R three wheeler. That was quite the experience out in the sand dunes. Yeah, it was it wasn't a true IRS, it was a swing axle design. Uh, that my dad and a guy named Rob Martin had done. I just kind of rode it. It was it was excellent for traction because it would squat, kinda of like a Volkswagen does, and press the tires on the ground. And it was manageable. It would have been a little bit hard to race on a short course because it dipped. You know, you couldn't keep it stable in the front. Um I don't know how it would have held up in the rocks and racing the desert, because you still wouldn't have because the fact that when it squatted in, in you the rocks, up the, the, everything it dug a trench <laughs> because this the drive sprocket was you know in the dirt. In the dirt. I think everybody thought about it. I know Marty always wanted to do it. And then Honda did it with the cylinder double X, but it must have had there must have been some design issues way above my thought process. For Honda, uh, Suzuki, Yamaha, never really to market a sport machine like that that could do it. And that 700 was just such a pig; it could nobody really wanted to race it. it just it had so many other issues. Um, I think really, like just give it a little quick think. Not enough center CG weight to make the wheels work. If not, you got to you got to be able like a car, truck. You know everything's working. And, and and you gotta have it where it'll work but still have enough stability to turn it. Right. It just it just not everything works on everything. You know what I'm saying? I I know from the experience I had on the XX doing some testing with the Craig Christie team, uh, it was a it was a rough ride because you couldn't go through the whoops at a at a pace that uh you could on a straight axle bike. I thought that it was great on some of the environment or some of the train was, was pretty awesome, but that's when you get it out there in the, in the, in the big whoops, it just didn't go through, it just it never got up on top. Polaris had one that Eichner went through. Yeah, Polaris, uh, when Eichner switched over to Polaris, he rode, uh, the first couple rounds, he won, he won the first race that Polaris ever did, um, on a, on an IRS bike, uh, with Josh Fredericks chasing him down on a, four fifty R. That was lost all of us. Yeah, that we were there. You you and I were standing there we're next to each Lenny rolled around in the dirt That free one. Oh yeah, it was an exciting <laughs> day. I mean that, that was <laughs> that, that was a hard fought. You know, we were five rounds in, hadn't won a race and after you'd been on top of the on top of the box your whole career at that at that series to to be five rounds in and not even win a race, it was it was kind of a stressful thing. So, you know. That was a that was a big day. It was a great day for uh, Doug and Polaris and you know myself. That was a cool place too. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was an amazing place. Uh, I think they don't let us ride, ride there anymore because uh, they want, monitored the trash so much that if you left trash, they just didn't invite you back. They wouldn't let you use tariffs. Yeah, because they didn't want to affect their uh, cattle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty pretty big deal. Josh, uh, so you. you uh, Get to sit down with with some guys that have chewed dirt that before you and uh, and maybe you've spent some time riding and, and and working with the with them. I know that you've raced a, against Brian's son, uh, yeah, and, and you, know, you guys have uh, tangled bars a couple of times and, you know, more than once. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, uh, no. Me and Garen rode. Shoot, I mean, when I first started, me and Garen kind of first started racing. Pro-Am together and racing, racing the amateur class. I mean, I remember getting beat by girls racing quad cross, you know, and you're learning to turn and jump. And, uh, no, I mean, it was Brian that kind of, kind of, kind of sparked that, that, that inner, I I always had this thing that I had to, I mean, I was the one like prepping and and working on my bikes. And, and when I was racing quad cross, Brian's like, he's like, dude, you got to ride it. Like, it's not like you don't got to fix it. You like that was, and I remember we were at ACP and I was riding like a sissy and Brian's like, you got to ride, you got to override the clutch, ride that thing. Like you don't got to fix it. Just go ride the thing. Don't ride it. Like you're, you're like, so you're going to get a half a season out of the clutch. Don't ride it. Like you're going to, and I remember from that day on, it was, I mean, yeah, we were cracking frames and we were going through clutches and we were wrecking stuff. But I mean, I, my speed just progressively got better and better and better and yeah, me and Garen, we went, I mean, through the ranks together from racing amateurs to pro-am to racing pro against each other, dicing it up. So did you together. ever get married? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <Oops>. uh, <laughs> hey, Did you ever get to race with your dad? Yeah, my very first race I ever did was uh, I was 15 years old and my dad was racing uh, Vegas Torino and he was teaming with my uncle and my uncle had crashed practicing. And my dad was like, I have nobody to race with. Like i got to have to solo it. And I remember he called my mom and was like, uh, Jill, is it okay if uh Josh races biggest reading with me? I remember my mom called me in the room. She's like, think you do it. I'm like, honestly, have no idea. I mean, my dad was racing a DS650 at the time. I was 15 years old, all of like 110 pounds soaking wet. And I rode like I think 130 hundred like thirty miles of the 600 mile race, but I was like, I just need a break. Just give me a break. That's all I need. And uh but yeah, no, we raced a a a ton of like little District Thirty Eight races and six hour like team races, and we did all kinds. Of, we've done all kinds of stuff together. Now doing the Razor.
1: How do, how do you take
0: him when you got faster than that? Um, it he, there was it's funny because my dad has always been like we still to this day like I I feel like I have got to in the desert to like where I feel like I can contest with the best of them and. He still to this day will ne- like he almost being 60 years old now will tell me that he will go out and lay a faster lap time on their 24 hour race course than I will ever, I would ever be able to lay down on that track. And well, it's a 10 mile course. And so when you only go eight miles, you get a good lap. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking. But. Love you, love you, Greg. Just kidding. I, man. I still, I, I see. I, I'm sure when you interview him, you'll have a hey, great conversation you know, with him about the same thing. Oh, he's still to this day. He will not let it like live it down. But, it's, but to your point, when I first started to get faster than him, he like it was every every Sunday. Me, my dad, and Travis Dillon, we would go out to Plaster City, and we had we had like a five mile loop, and we would just ride that loop for hours until it got hot, and then we would drive home and that was where I started getting faster and like learning and everything. And then once I started once I got faster I where I caught my dad and I passed him and we were on the drive home and my dad had nothing but excuses about how the new quad wasn't working. Right. And the shocks weren't set up. Right. And this and that and is going on and on. We get out of the truck and child's like, Oh dude, you got his number. And my dad was from that day on, he's been flustered. So it's good. <laughs> wow. That's, that's pretty awesome. But yeah. Hey, at least you get the experience of going out and riding with your dad. yeah yeah he's uh yeah he's been a he's he's always i mean he's never been like he's never ever put pressure on me so that's kind of made it fun he's never like oh i did this we did like it was always you know i just all all for fun like there was never a uh like stern hand on you know i needed to to do better so that was that kind of made it fun you you know in, in the olden days they they used to hire gunslingers to to control the town or to to take care of things in your world, you're kind of a hired throttle. How does that make you feel when the when the the teams that are trying to win the, the championships in Baja best in the desert call you and say, "Hey we need you to 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 clinch this championship come and ride with us you know how does it make you feel that, that you have all of these titles on your belt from things just being the the guy that they anchored they needed the anchor and you were the guy. Uh pretty cool. I mean uh I mean I'm really blessed actually because I, I mean I sadly don't have a quad right now. So whenever they call for me to go ride a quad, it's awesome. I love it. So every time they give me a call and they want me to go ride two, three hundred miles, I'm I'm definitely that guy. But now they uh I mean the riding with Simmons, those the, the quads that the quads that you prepped and built. I mean we've the, the last few years we've had nothing but success and um yeah, it was really cool of them to 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 invite us onto the team and, and to, to, to really show we're made of. So it's cool to, to go up against the, the best out there and to be able to. Well, those were the, that was the first machine that you had ridden that I had prepped and built. Okay. So that, so, you know, it'd been a while yeah. for us, you know, racing in, in the same places and doing the same things for us to be on the same team. Yeah, I'd never uh racing desert, we've always ran a super mild motor. Just everything stock with a cam really. If just for reliability and the and the motors that you guys have built have I still to this day amazed that they're are able to do five, six hundred miles wide open and and have that much power. I mean they're so much fun to ride and for them to be able to be able to last the I mean, like Vegas Reno, you know, me and Sloan, we like tag team the last three hundred miles of that race and that thing never lifted off a of fourth, fifth gear on at, at going to Reno. So, I mean, yeah, they're, uh, but like what we were talking about, the the technology and how far everything's come. I mean, like the quad when we got off of the finish line was like, we took off the start line I mean, the shocks weren't boiled. I mean, nothing was changed. the tires. Other, and, yeah. Other than the tires, being about, put a clutch was, in it. And, yeah. yeah it we could have raced back. Yeah. So <laughs> well, we always believed that in order to finish first, you must first finish. So if I don't care how fast you are, if it breaks, you know, yeah, that was kind of wasted the whole day. That was kind of the like the mentality once I started getting better in the in the Baja and and the best in the desert races was I always, whether we started first or we started 10th, I would always sprint to the lead physically. That way we could take care of the bike. So the first 70, 80 miles, I'd do everything in my power to physically pass everybody. That way we know we have them on time. And then I would, every single time we come to the pits, we have all this extra time to look at the bike, change the air filter, check the tire, check the chain. To where the quad is ultimately in tip-top shape the whole race. And these guys are always rushing their pits. And they're, I mean, ultimately, they're behind uh, they... tons of their races. They were they were losing due to mechanicals, not because we were, I mean, we would just, we could get out front, throw a five-minute lead on and put them on a cruise control and never see it again. Just because it would just accrue over the, You know, the 12-hour day. But, Brian, you got to be into a a special category where you were ATV champion, racer, and then you roll into dad, uh, race dad. How is that experience for you, knowing the things that you got to do and, and, and the accomplishments that you have, and then bringing your sons along? In the race, the race dad is very expensive. Yeah, it's a, and race mom is very stressful. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was good. It was a you know, it was a family affair. It started with quad cross. You know, Garen's four years older than his brother, so Kyle came along a couple of years later, and then uh, so the quad cross had good success, and then we turned it into uh, doing the works and the work series, kind of use that as a a family vacation trip, get to see places we haven't been able to see. And, you know, with, with you know, Duncan racing behind us with making sure the bikes and everything were good. We had a lot of success. The kids did very well. Garen won a lot of amateur championships and Kyle won a whole bunch also. Um, I think it brings a lot to the table when you have the experience that you know we gained when I say we, you know, Lauren and Lenny and all of us racing way back in the eighties to pass it on now because the only difference now is if you're using a four fifty instead of a two fifty and you know, of course the suspension came along a lot more than what I ever rode. I actually have a hard time riding a fully suspended roll chassis quad compared to the rigid 250 yards that I raced, but you could definitely watch the kids and watch, you know, Josh was there with us pretty much the whole way. It was, uh, it's stressful, but yet very exhilarating as far as, you know, watching them, especially when they're, they're leading or battling for a lead or a win or a championship. And, you know, we were blessed enough to win, you know, several championships. You know, Garen won three championships all in the same year with works, which has never been done that I know of. I don't think it'll ever be done again because they they mix the classes. classes. Yeah, they put the classes at the same time. Which that was pretty stressful because that was you know a lot of riding in a weekend and a lot of wear and tear on the bikes and you know required three bikes for him to be able to do that. Yeah, and you know, and then Kyle was riding. He had one bike, and then whatever other backup would be available if he had issues. So it was uh it was exciting, you know. Um you know, Kim and I talk about it all the time now that we're pretty much done racing other than going to the dunes. And you know the kids love that too. So it's she always says she enjoyed it because we got to see a lot of things that, that they wouldn't have been able to see without it. Uh she doesn't miss the uh you know the injuries and the you know, some of the some of the, the politics that come along with it, but it definitely helped, you know, my kids be more sociable with people and, you know, working with, you know, racing with different kids and different people and, you know, watching the really pro guys really do it, especially the motorcycle guys. And I think it gave them a lot of uh, um, life lessons, you know, not only with the traveling, but with the racing and the prepping and, you know all the stuff that goes with it. Trying to get a bike ready when it's broken to be ready to go the next day. There's a lot of stress in there. But I think it uh, I think it the kids along with Josh learned a lot from all of that. You you get a you get to do some things with your children that most dads and moms don't get to do. You get to spend time doing what they love to do, what you love to do and and it brings you closer and and you get to talk about some of those memories and uh, I had Garrett on the podcast in the in the very beginning, and uh he was reluctant to talk too much about you know following in his dad's footsteps uh, on in the racing portion uh, and I understand I probably understand why because you know i'm I'm sitting here next to my dad and I'm sitting here with my brother and these are two of the most influential people in my life that have gotten me where i am and gotten me to to do the things that I've done, and, and I get it you know. You can't uh, you you can't buy you can't buy what these people do for you, you know. I mean I've gotten to enjoy Josh. I've gotten to enjoy your children, uh Garen and Kyle and, and the hundreds of other kids that we've come across that we've got to race. And I and I say hundreds because there's some of the kids I can't even remember their names. They were there for a season or they were there for two and you know, they all roll into each other from going to quad cross races, going to uh, works races, even some District 38 stuff. Yeah, I know. It was fun over the years. I mean, with 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 getting ready for all the races, I mean, we figure we were racing every other weekend. So we had bikes for quad cross, we had bikes for works, and then we're getting each one ready and having to make sure we got all the parts. And like, at that time, it, it was super stressful. Now I'd give anything to go do it again. But it was, it was a point, where, I mean, we're like, like our parents literally let us live the dream. Like we were either riding, working on our quads, or we were driving to the next race. And we would go. We, I mean, we'd do our twenty-four hour pulls to Washington and back, and the parents would fly up, or they'd drive their motorhomes, and we'd go on white river riverboat gambling trips. We go do all kinds of stuff that we were. I mean, it was just it was. I mean, it, we did the racing and we took it serious, but there was also the the fun and just enjoying what we were doing, and that was was what kind of made the whole thing. Worth it. I think a lot of the racing when we did short course with Lauren, you know, a lot of things were secret. To you know, you're you're out there trying to to you know win races, and you don't want people to really know what you're doing and what you're running, and you know. And then you, you step into you know the next level, and you and then uh, you go to the desert and you go to do desert racing, and those people will give you the shirt off of your back to help you beat them you know then you go to, go to works and it's kind of the same way works family is actually a pretty cool group of you know a couple 300 riders and racers that if you need something they everybody will help you so if there's some races you go to where you know people won't even give you the time of day and then you go to other places where they'll make you breakfast and you know let you use their bike if yours is broken so there's there's two different sides to to racing sometimes and i found that the the more family oriented ones or don't take it. They take it serious, but it's not life or death. Where you go to some of the races where you know it's the big nationals and that there's not the personality. People trying to you know, everybody keeps it to themselves. I think that was the hardest thing for me to to get used to. Well, you're, you're professional companies, you're out there under the big tent. You're uh, you're the big show, and I I can understand both sides of it. I've gotten to. Uh, be a mechanic on the Nationals uh, under the direction of Lauren, uh, who ran the team for uh, the Nationals for a number of years. And, you know, the professional level that we were trying to maintain. And you didn't really, I didn't really ever have time to intermingle with many of the other guys. You, you know, I got to, to meet some of the great writers, you know, back in the day, Shane and Doug Gusk. You know, and you got to spend a little bit of time getting to know these guys. But no, there wasn't a lot of um, there wasn't a lot of parts changing. There wasn't a lot of you know doing a, a different things. I mean, some of the riders got to go and ride at this guy's track or ride at that guy's track. But uh, when we when we started and we transitioned into the works into the you know the early two thousands, uh, it was a totally different world. You were you were we had the big trailer, but you know when somebody needed help, they rolled their bike over and they didn't care what flag like they had. We helped them and, and we went racing because it was a smaller platform with less people uh, and you just needed everybody there on the line. So you did what you could to get that other guy that might beat you that day and sometimes did. You did what you could to get to get them to the line. I just always learned that from the because If I had what they needed a hundred miles down the road in middle of nowhere, they're going to have something that I need. So I just always, I didn't care. I mean, like when I got back into racing just a couple years ago and Bo wanted me to come out and he literally called me and said, what do you need to come race your quad? And I was like, I, dog. I, I was like, I literally have like the bare essentials. Like I don't have, so I don't have all kinds of stuff. And Bo was like, come to my house, we'll get you set up. Like I want you to ride a quad again. I'm like, wow. Like the top dog to call me and I even gave it to him at San hollow one one race back well and, yeah and he, he, he loaned you all the parts it. and then you went out and whooped his body. yeah it was i mean but that just shows that's the type of guy bo is I mean, bo is bo is that guy i mean he he's literally at works right now spanking everybody on motorcycle after he just spanked everybody on his squad last really? weekend and he's i mean the guy is unbelievably talented but Very i mean talented. as a as a person he's like even cooler than, than 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 his riding abilities will ever say. So they don't make guys like him no. Guys, I mean they broke them all. I mean he'd almost pull over and help you rather than see you not succeed. Oh hundred percent. He did that for Davy. Davy broke leading. He yeah pulled up next to him and held a rope out. He was gonna tow him in. <laughs> and Davy said, not. Nah. He broke because his header pipe broke. Yeah. Up in. I was like you're you're you were winning. I'll just tow you across the finish line. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's okay. Winning's <laughs> it, important to him. His family's important to him. and uh, But being a good guy is more important to him. I mean, it's, I mean, that's his livelihood, too. I mean, there's not very many guys that do it for, you know, to, to pay the bills at home. And that's, I mean, that's what he does. And to still even have that kind of level of, you know, help anybody you can, is pretty pretty Well, crazy. if you look at the bank of the photos that I received from him, because he was on the podcast a couple episodes ago uh he uh races a motorcycle preps it races two different classes of utvs wait wait hang on hang on he races a motorcycle that he bought that is bone stock and is strictly To provide for his family. Yes. Does not put stabilizer, does not have suspension done, does not put any money into it because that would be taking money away from going towards the family. So he is showing these guys the way on a box stock motorcycle. When he told me that, I was literally, I didn't have no words. And and you believe him because that's the kind of guy he is. hundred percent. A hundred percent. And... I've seen his motorcycle. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's, it's just literally he has flex bars on it. <laughs> he strapped it to the back of his wife's car to go to the race. I've seen the, Yeah. I've seen the pictures and hey. the video that he sent me and I'm just like, wow, that's that's crazy. The, 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 those are the kind of guys that, that grow our sport because they reach out to that little kid and they take the time to shoot the photo and they shake that kid's hand and put him on the quad and that little kid never forgets that and that's that that rolls into a future champion in motorcycles or ATVs or okay. e- even the UTVs because Bo's in the UTV is pretty heavy and do, does quite well. You do some UTV ride, driving as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, got the opportunity to race Wayne Malox Razor at the ball and 1000 in the last couple of years. So it's been a pretty, pretty huge, huge uh, undertaking being a, seeing as he's like the full top dog down there in that that class but uh i mean last year we we came and we lost by a few minutes at the at the finish we had a a very minuscule part fail that shouldn't have failed and but yeah i mean I, i drove the first 340 miles last year and put a half an hour physically on the field in his car so it was uh it was pretty cool to go out there and show all those guys that get big bucks to just, just <laughs> taking away from the ATVs for a second, Josh. Just, do you get the same feel or the same uh, adrenaline rush or a level of enthusiasm to drive the UTV as you do riding the quad or the motorcycle? I, I love competition, and racing the quad is awesome. But when the the whole AT, I mean, when I first started racing. It was like at the time there was many guys. You had Frederick, you had Nelson, you had Barron, you had all these guys are getting paid to do it. And it was like at that time I was like, cool, I could eventually get to that level to make this my job. And then once I finally got up to where I was going to be close to do that, a side by side to come decided to come out, and every single person in the world went and bought side by sides. So I mean, the whole ATV industry as a whole fell off. And there's, I mean it's so hard to like go and race a, a quad. You call a company and say, Hey, I'm going to go do this. And they're like, cool. We can give you 25% off. And it's like, yeah, well, I'm going to have to come out. I mean, and we all know how much a race quad costs to build and to, to even come close to doing that. It's like, it's crazy. And a side-by-side company, you call them and say, Hey, I'm doing this. They're like, cool. What's your address? How much do you need? And it's like, there's, it, just in, I mean, there's in each class racing a side by side is forty to fifty cars, and there's like full opportunity for like full factory support, all this stuff, and it's just hard to to juggle. I mean, I love like when I'm racing his car cars a thousand, and being able to go down there and do well is is my main thing, and to go race against these guys that are making good money doing it is like it's, it's fun. I I mean, to what you're saying of of riding a quad, absolutely not. I cannot wheelie through four four foot whoops and catch air and throw it into a turn and do that that kind of stuff. Absolutely not. There is no there is no adrenaline. There is no like when you're when you're on the quad and you're so dialed in that you can't mess up and you are so perfect that when you get done, you're like, yeah, I'm pretty much the man at this point. You, I mean, you're, I mean, it's especially in the car because you're going against. I mean, just keeping the car alive, right? Like the the quads we kind of I mean, knock on wood, we have those I mean, we have those things pretty well dialed in. Like we don't have any mechanical failures. These cars, if you look at it wrong, it could just throw a check engine mine. You don't know. <laughs> so I mean it's just it's it's hard to I mean they each have their, their pluses and minus. I just I love the competition. That's what's that's what I that's what I thrive off of when it's go time. Wow, that's uh, <laughs> that's a lot there. Um, the future, Lauren, what do you see? <laughs> I think it's going to probably stay the same for the next few years. Just depends on what happens in the world, but uh, I don't think you're going to see a lot of big changes. You know, I think uh, ATV industry's kind of stabilized. It's got its little niche. Okay. Vintage is kind of reared, reared up and it's doing well, um, but, but how many people don't do it anymore? You know, there's not a lot of companies left that uh, can sustain a focus of working on ATVs to do that. So many people have to do other things to be able to pay the bills and just work on ATVs. We're one of the few companies that can stay in business solely from working on ATVs.
1: And UTVs
0: is just another, everybody in the world's trying to put their hand in that pot to get money out of it. From mm-hmm. off-road truck people to buggy people to motorcycle dealers, the UTV manufacturers. It's just so saturated over there. Mm-hmm. And the evolution of the UTV is steering it towards the watercraft market. You buy a jet ski today, you don't do anything. You roll it off the showroom floor, and you, you just drive it. You use it. You don't do any service. You don't wreck it. You never have to take it back to the dealer. The consumer base is just going to turn key, turn the key. It's going to have a radio. It's going to have seats. Yeah. It's going to have everything it needs, and you just so they're bought. Right. they're bought on the, can I make the payment? So they want to put it all in there, yep. pay one payment, instead of buying three or four quads or three or four motorcycles. They buy one UTV. The family's got it. And you know, you go. I bought a towel, and there's not much to do to it. I'm not going to release it, Bob. But just to go out and have a good time, maybe make a tire change and a couple little things, maybe some radios. But the vast majority of it, there's no money to spend on it. There's no motor work that needs to be done. You know, it's just it's pretty done. And you know, Kawasaki came out in a new one, and Yamaha's got some great ones. Polaris obviously has. There's can you're not buying Can M's and modifying them. They're coming off the showroom floor. That's what people are keeping. They are almost 90 miles an hour off the showroom floor. Yeah, you don't need to be until you crash it. The general consumer does not need to be going 90 mm-hmm. miles an hour. It's pushing the aftermarket industry out, kind of like mm-hmm. Harley's. It's going to say you can get every trick part you need from Harley's, and the vast majority of the stuff comes from Harley, from one of their companies. And the UTV manufacturers are doing the same thing. So there's not going to be a you wouldn't start a business model to go build, build performance parts for you can use. There's always gonna be a few niches for people to do it. But is it gonna just sustain a whole industry? Yeah, Wings pre-runner that he has has almost six thousand miles on it and it's boxed off. It's and it's bulletproof. Like it's 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 insane. Like before it was like you couldn't drive them without the long travel, without the bigger tires, without all these things. And now, like you said, I mean everything rear, you literally just go you can go down there and pick one up and find Yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, go have a good time. Yeah, go down there and zero down and have a great time. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know, I mean, well two winners are the same way. Right? You buy a yeah. Sierra four fifty, it's better than ninety-eight ninety-nine point eight of the whole world and off the show. floor. everybody like good life. It's a it's great job. job. Well, everyone you think the you KTN, all of them are good bikes, you know. Yep. And if you do do work on it, it's more because they got a hundred pound weight difference or this guy's taller or they want to make a specific change you you don't really are, are improving on what the factory yeah. done. Same trucks i bought a truck the other day it doesn't need anything yeah you know it's got a nice wheel package on it look it's at your trucks you got a great truck you bought it there's nothing to do to it yeah i haven't done anything to it I've been driving yeah. to change the oil yeah Every, in the olden days you had to always miles. work on them and you were aftermarket stuff If you if you just observe the world, the aftermarket industry for those types of products for boats, jet skis, UTVs, ATVs, trucks, it's just shrinking, 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 shrinking. Because the factories are just making much better products with all the widgets on them. And it's cool that Yamaha finally came out, like they have a plus three wider quad, like for the consumer to be able to just throw a set of shocks on it and be able to go ride their platform. I mean, like we know the Honda. As soon as you buy it, it goes to a bare frame to, to sure. get the frame gusseted, to get everything dialed in to where we can well, actually count if, on these if things. You're gonna, if you're going to build a Yamaha quad and you're going to build a Honda quad, you can break them down to a frame. And, and, and there's things that you got to do to both of them to go to the pro level, to right. race in the B class, to race in the C class, to right. race in the A class. You don't have to n- n- do near as much. Um, I know that the, the race dads you know, can't let their kid go out there on anything but the coolest quad. But if you're going to evolve correctly, you need to start out with less before you go. I feel there. like we just, I mean, just in our years of knowledge of preventative maintenance, that's just pretty much what we've oh, always yeah, done. I mean, yeah, not just pro or amateur. I mean, just in cracking frames. And oh, yeah. yeah, like yeah Worldwide, that's going to support you. You can't look at the race part to support the industry because it won't. Right. Right. You know, and a and little bit of UTV racing as big as. as Josh says it is now. I remember going to the Redlands with a thousand uh, ATVs there. Yep. You know, but that's still that's that's nothing compared to what the real numbers are. Recreational ride, yep. know, the guy riding the sand pits in Pennsylvania. You know, the guy in the trails of Canada. You know, those guys. Just, we get calls all day long to people that don't even care about racing. Don't even never even other race than, these other, things. Yeah. You other know, than the probably. technology that we can offer them from our past racing, that's all they care about. Right, they right. just want the product' because they' go have a great time, and we we've also gone to races where you had to qualify, you know yep. even at the amateur level you had to qualify to get into the race, and some of the races you go to, you just have to sign up, yeah, so yep. it's gone both ways, yeah, my my dad has like old v h s videos of scrolling down the start line at edition thirty race. So I was i mean the video it's insane. How many quads wide they had sitting on the dead engine, like, bomb start. And it, it was... I mean, I've never seen... Even since I, my first memory of watching my dad race at District Greenwood, I've never seen a start line that. Uh, I remember sitting on the sitting at the start of a uh, Vegas Torino. When the green flag drops at sunrise for the first motorcycle. Okay, that's 6 a.m.-ish. It's 7.30 and we're still... <laughs> Haven't got to the green light to go yet. Yeah, I mean that tells you uh, that 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 dirt bike is pretty far out there before you get there. Yeah, I want to play a little game here, guys. Uh, I'm going to start with you, uh, Danny. What was your favorite race machine? Winter Deck. Favorite? That's the favorite of all of them. What did you like to race? I know, you raced motorcycles back in the day. The race. uh, The race I. The bike I would have liked to have was uh something I couldn't afford. I raced the BSA and I raced Triumphs and I raced the Montessa. I would have liked to have raced a Bull Taco because uh with all the work I'd done on my BSA I couldn't keep up with the, the Bull Taco stock. So <laughs> Yes, these were machines that were built in the fifties and sixties brian what was what's your uh, what's your machine machine of choice well it's my favorite machine race wise was the two hundred x that Mr D built when we uh won the amateur national at Porto, san, san jose san jose yeah that was uh that was an experience and a half is uh, we really raced the two fifty and then uh, Mr D let us run the two hundred class if I could get signed up and we did. The yeah and he uh came over to me and goes okay this is the clutch this is the brake that's the throttle you twist the throttle till it stops excelling count to two and then shift okay <laughs> we went out had two restarts because kids crashed and i think we ended up uh winning that thing by quite a few seconds but that was probably the the funnest cause I was a big kid on a two hundred X. Yeah, he was there. Was ginormous. I remember I was there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I just rode the wheels off that thing and had no and especially with the restarts. I'm like, God, these little kids are just gonna outdrive me. And, and we just rode the wheels off that thing. That was probably one of my most favorite times, you know, because it was just something I never thought we could uh. Win an amateur national and you 200 <laughs> <laughs> and then you did it, Lauren. Oh, probably the Lobo 250 yard Lobo with the BC 2000. And it was so many years to develop the chassis with Doug and develop that cylinder. And there, it was a bike that Spader won the championship. And I think it was, in the year that he won it, he had a podium with every national, and uh, that bike is probably. My favorite, because we probably had the most blood, sweat, and tears in that thing, or the evolution to get to that, it took at least five years to refine that motor, chassis, shock. I, mean, I remember Doug Roll and Mike Halleck testing for hours on shocks and suspension. And I knew that because I had to supply the riders and the motors for all the testing they wanted. <laughs> you know, they probably had 500 hours to figure that out. Do you think you'll ever recoup the cash that it costs no, no, no. Personally, my favorite bike to ride was my XR75.
1: And that, I raced in that at
0: Verona. I remember that? Yeah. It was, it, it was just fun to race those things. There's, there's a cult following for those machines if you look even, at one. Even if the seat fell off. Huh? Yeah. I, mean, a few times. The gas cap. I don't remember the gas cap. I remember the seat fell off on you a couple of times this this is archaic we're talking uh, uh early 70s xr75 i had a 75 about a 70, 75 yeah. the sl 70s were pretty awesome that was a way before your time i know josh you're a little you're you're a little foggy on me thinking what are you talking about <laughs> this is fun stuff uh josh how about you uh, i'd have to say not Last years, but the first the first year I raced with you guys at Vegas Arena, that that quad I rode, I think like three hundred, three hundred twenty five miles that day. That thing was the most fun I've ever had. They couldn't they couldn't get me off it. I was I was kind of hoping they were going to make the last pit so I could go to the finish. Yeah, that that bike was. You know, like I, I've got to listen oh, to sir? dad's stories all along and and that bike when you cracked the throttle in the shop the floor shook and it just was perfect i mean you, you couldn't i have built a lot of machines and i would have to say that's one of my favorites too because it was perfect i i actually rode i rode 100 miles of that that race we ran a the thumb and twist throttle and when aaron went through a section when they flopped the pin, they didn't put the other side in, and it got mud in the hole. So I rode 100 miles of that race on the outside of the throttle because every time i twist the throttle, the thumb would move, and it kept, like, my whole thumb was bloody because I would I was holding on to the outside and touching the brake with my, just my index finger just so I could stop the bike because I, could, I, mean, I couldn't, I could I didn't know what was wrong. Obviously, I wasn't going to stop, so we're, that yeah, was a good time. With that being said, you had a little uh, entertaining uh, back and forth with somebody after uh, that Vegas Sereno. Oh, um, yeah. Adam McGill was uh, was out that race. He's a GNCC racer, and he came up to me and he told me that his TRX 450, the team that he came out with, would do. I believe he said 96 miles an hour. I've never heard of a TRX 450 doing that in my life. And he's like, "Oh no, this must have... not have been on the internet." He, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, he's like. He's like, no, this, this quad will do 96. We got engineers here. I got the proper gearing. I got elevation. I got this, I got this, this quad will do it. And I was like, dude, if your quad does 96 miles an hour, I don't think it's going to make you the whole way, but I wish you the best of luck. And when we took off the start line, we took off third physically. And when I caught him going to pit two, his quad was not doing 96 miles an hour. And when I went by him, he called me on the way home and he's like, I'm not gonna tell you this, but one time he's like, You can put it in your wallet, and he said, You're a badass in the desert. I've never been past like that ever. Like you went by me and I literally couldn't even see in front of me. So I don't know what you were seeing, but he couldn't he couldn't believe it. And it was the funniest thing because he was talking so much smack to me before the race. But he's a he's a he's a good he's a good sport. And it was it was cool. I mean, it's kind of kind of my my cup. Co- I mean, compared to him. I mean, you take me out and racing. Racing his woods, I'd be flowering all over the all over myself. So it's all good. You also retired a guy that day too. Oh, <laughs> I don't I don't know about that, but yeah, you I retired I, from ATV racing yeah, that day? Yeah, I caught, I caught Cody Mitchell that day. I love Cody. I mean, Cody, Cody raced the Ball 500 in 2013. He's a, he's a good guy, but yeah, no, I caught him uh, just before I caught Adam. Cody was in in Adam's dust, and I I mean I caught both of them within a quarter mile, and when i went by him i was probably doing 30 40 miles an hour faster than he was and he was not about to about to push the envelope like i was that day but it was a it's good times that was a that was a good day because that bike just drove away yeah yeah that was that was one of those days we passed past pass the field before pit two and never looked I, back. I don't think we ever saw anybody again yeah we just never looked back <laughs> uh in closing gentlemen uh i really want to say thank you very much for your time I know it's I know it's very valuable I know you're all very busy uh, doing the things that you do um, and I appreciate your your perspectives on the ATV industry and I hope that we can do this again uh, I know that I'd like to get each and every one of you individually uh, but this is a round table and and this is what it was designed for to, to get a mix of different opinions and and uh, I really want to say thank you and I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for your input into the ATV world and the things that you brought us to a sport that I love and, and, and enjoyed and, and made a living at, at doing. Um, you know, like I said, the, the two men that got me where I am are my father and my brother, and uh, they're both here. Uh, Josh has made my machines look incredible. Brian's got to ride a couple of machines that I worked on way back when I was early in my career. And uh, both of his sons of ridden machines that I've performed uh, duties on. Uh, But thank you, gentlemen, for for joining ATV Talk today. And I hope you'll come back and and visit with us. Absolutely. Yes, sir.
1: Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) Have a great day, gentlemen. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com.